Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Master Your Energy podcast. I'm your grateful host, Megan Wren. So happy to be here as always. Today we have a special guest on the podcast, Dr. Alyssa Dweck. She is a practicing gynecologist and the chief medical officer at Bonafide. She's an OBGYN for over 30 years and she has a special interest in menopausal health and training in female sexual health. So we dive all into that with perimenopause, menopause, lifestyle. We talk about hormone replacement theory. We talk about sexual health. We talk about libido. We talk about orgasms. We go all in. Dr. Dweck is also the co-author of three books. She's appeared in the Today Show and Good Day LA. She contributes regularly to multiple prints and online media outlets and has been voted a top doctor in New York Magazine and Westchester Magazine. So without further ado, here is Alyssa. Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? You bet. So my name is Alyssa Dweck. I am a, you know, traditionally trained OBGYN. I practice here in the New York area and I've been in practice for almost 30 years. I'm also an author. So I like to write about uh, what I do all day long, which is take care of people with vaginas. So that's a whole lot of fun. And I am also the chief medical officer for Bonafide Health, which is a company that Uh, makes uh, natural nutritional products to help women who are traversing the menopause experience. Epic. I'm actually really excited for this conversation because it's so interesting. A lot more studies and articles I've been seeing about women's health and the importance of it lately and in something along with saying that like you know 50% of the population has a clitoris and we're now just talking about it (laughs) yeah that was just a recently a very big article in the New York Times and in fact it came out two or three days ago and I literally had three or four people in my office today concerned they had issues there due to reading that article so it's good that this is on the radar yeah yeah so tell me a little bit more about what you specialize in Sure. So, you know, it's kind of funny when you're a gynecologist, you train in both obstetrics and gynecology, but usually you start your practice and it gets super busy taking care of very young people and then people having babies. And then your practice kind of ages with you. So I find myself currently taking care of many, many more perimenopausal and menopausal women. So I do have uh, expertise in female sexual health and sexual and uh, special interest in the menopause uh, time. So, I mean, uh, (laughs) obviously I'm a little bit younger, but I think some of our listeners are younger too. We have kind of a broad range, but can we go into a little bit more about what menopause is and what perimenopause is and what that really means? Absolutely. And actually this is the best time to be talking about it because there are so many you know, preparations and lifestyle modifications that people can make so that when they do get to this stage, it's a little easier and uh, actually can be, you know, quite pleasurable. So menopause in general occurs when the ovaries stop ovulating and stop producing so much estrogen, progesterone, and even testosterone. The definition of menopause is 12 consecutive months without your period, usually after the age of 40, Otherwise, it's considered early menopause. The perimenopause time are those years leading up to when menopause occurs. And it could be four to eight to 10 years of some symptoms that might seem a little bit uh, disconnected or unrecognizable. 
So perimenopause might include some irregular cycles, skip cycles, slight change in flow. Some women will also complain about some sleep disruption, some hot flashes, some mood changes, maybe a little mental fog, all of which are interrelated and likely in part at least due to hormonal changes. And then in menopause, which again, is just that one day when you've gone 12 months without your period, mm -hmm. symptoms may change a little bit, more hot flashes, night sweats, trouble sleeping, uh, mental fog, vaginal changes, sexual changes. So these things are things that we can prepare for over time. And are all of these, are all of these side, are they side effects, symptoms? I would just call them symptoms of a very natural stage of life. So in other words, anybody with ovaries is going to go through this at some point or another. Yeah. We do know that some people have higher risk to have more intense symptoms. So there was a really big study called the SWAN study, which mm -hmm. was studying women about, uh, you know, across the ages to learn about aging. But we also learned a lot about menopause. We do know there are ethnic differences in hot flashes, duration, and intensity. So we know that African-American women tend to have longer duration of hot flashes, more intense hot flashes. We know that Hispanic women likely are not too far behind and that Caucasian women probably have a less uh, severity of symptoms. That's just one example of one thing that was learned from that study. We know that smokers have a worse experience with menopause. So again, some of the um, symptoms might be modifiable and others you're kind of just born into. So what are some that would be modifiable and what are some that are not? So the easiest modifiable symptoms, and maybe I shouldn't call it easy, but the common ones would be lifestyle. So diet. So during the perimenopause and menopause time and just age in general, we do lose muscle mass. Mm -hmm. That means we lose some of our metabolic tissue and it's harder to maintain weight. So we talk a lot about the Mediterranean style diet at this time, which is a cardioprotective diet, but also it's a low glycemic diet so that it's easier to maintain weight because you don't have these big peaks and valleys of sugar and insulin and energy surges and energy depletions. Um, and we can go into that type of diet style if you like in more detail. Other modifiable factors would be exercise. So we've got to up our game with exercise. So cardio, um, usually 150 minutes a week, uh, strength training a couple of times a week, flexibility training. Again, these things help protect the heart. They help protect our bones and they help us to maintain weight. And they're also amazing stress reducers, yeah. which is something that we really need to focus on at this time of life when we have so much going on. Um, and then other than other stress reduction measures, I would say smoking is probably the, the final really modifiable uh, factor that makes a big, big difference on um, you know, your experience. We know that uh, genetics has a lot to do with this, so we can't change that. But those three or four factors are fairly big. So, and those help influence the intensity of the symptoms that you would get from menopause? Yes, they can. They also can dictate how many symptoms you have. And overall, you know, what do I see in my office? The hot flashes, the night sweats, the sleep disruption. So all three of those things are going to help with those symptoms. Yeah. But people complain of weight gain 
all the time, particularly right around the middle. And so this is where being proactive with these lifestyle management tools is going to be helpful before you get to that point. Um, so what things are not modifiable? Genetics. Okay. So we do know that um, a, a lot of the experience, not only the age of when menopause is going to occur, but also the severity of the experience and some of the symptoms will uh, mirror what your mom may have gone through. Hmm. So if your mom went through menopause at the average age of about 51, then it's likely you will be on or about that time, give or take a couple of other factors that go on during life. Um, so that's not modifiable. Uh, medical diseases may not be modifiable. So for example, if you have uh, diabetes or you have heart disease or you have high cholesterol uh, or even you know cancers of one sort or another, these are things that may uh, alter your pathway and the symptoms that you feel and how severe they are. Got it. So I hate, I always do this, use the word basically to reduce, I don't want to reduce it down, but to some that the way that we treat our bodies every day will influence the way that our body responds to hormonal changes. And that makes sense because we have a hormone release every day, all day, depending on what chemical reactions happening. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And when the ovaries stop functioning as uh, vigorously as they do in the reproductive years, you know, you're going to see drops in estrogen. You're going to see volatile, like a you know, uh, peaks and troughs of mm. this uh, hormone level in addition to uh, the other two I mentioned. So yeah, this is going to take a toll on basically every cell in our body. When do the estrogen levels start dropping? You know, that's a really good question. And it, it really has a lot to do with uh, the different types of birth control that people are using. Also, um, you know, whether pregnancy occurs at any point, but during perimenopause, it could be as early as your late thirties and it may not be easily recognizable. You know, women in their late thirties are not necessarily thinking, oh, wow, I bet this symptom that I'm having right now is due to perimenopause. You know, there's kind of a disconnect because, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of ramp up to this, but I would yeah. say in the uh, late thirties, for sure, there may be some subtle changes. I'm, I'm curious as to if you've seen this with women wanting to get pregnant later in life. Mm -hmm. um, what, I mean, can, can we talk about that? You bet. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really know what to ask, but, but like, what's the, I feel like you got, you got, I have a lot to say. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> That's what um, I thought. So, so, you know, there's sort of two, two camps here. So yeah. there is the perimenopausal population who thinks that they can't get pregnant because they're maybe, you know, in their mm -hmm. mid to late to thirties or early forties. And they feel like maybe they don't need to use contraception. And then they get the big surprise that, that maybe they were not expecting, anticipating, or desiring. So I guess take-home message number one is during the perimenopausal years, so usually from late 30s or early 40s to about 51 or 52, contraception of some sort is still needed if somebody doesn't want to get pregnant. Wow. Okay. And that doesn't have to be the pill or an IUD. It could be a condom. It could be withdrawal. It could be yeah. rhythm, but any, some, it, you need to be aware of this. Yeah. On the flip side, there are plenty of women that I'm seeing in my practice who really are delaying their childbearing because they've got other aspirations, professional or otherwise, or maybe they're not with the partner they want to have their children with. 
Uh, but either way, we're seeing a big surge in people freezing their eggs because this has become successful. So this is called cryopreservation. Typically, women will see a specialist in reproductive endocrinology or an infertility specialist, have a consultation, have a, a little bit of a workup to make sure eggs and hormone levels seem really robust, and then go through a procedure of cryopreservation and put their eggs on ice until they're ready to either mix them with a partner sperm or mix them with donor sperm uh, or get pregnant you know, at a much later time than they might have naturally. And this is quite beneficial because your eggs age with you. Yeah. So if you freeze your eggs when you're 32, your eggs are 32. They're not maybe 40 when you want to be pregnant, which has implications for risks during pregnancy and risks for your baby. Make sense? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that just makes me think about, okay, I'm 30 here. <laughs> You're a baby. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to scare anybody. No, yeah. There's no set age for this, but yeah. again, you know, here in, in, in the, my neck of the woods in New York, this is a, a I don't want to say a common practice, but I'm asked about it very frequently. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've just seen a lot, a lot more of a shift to women in their forties looking to get pregnant. And I find that, yes. um, it's, you know, it's new, it's interesting. Yep. And, um, yeah, that's all. Um, can we talk about what the, what is the vaginal microbiome? Yeah. So this topic is all the rage right now. Okay. You know, we've all heard of the gut microbiome. This is a community of organisms, usually bacteria, viruses, fungi, other types of organisms. And they all live in perfect harmony, whether it's in your gut. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about a specific microbiome in the vagina. Mm -hmm. Most just to really, really simplify, there are good bacteria called lactobacilli, which I'm sure you and your audience are quite familiar with. And there are other bacteria and there's usually a balance of these good and other bacteria. And the reason that lactobacilli are so favorable in the vagina is because they produce lactic acid, which keeps the vagina at an acidic pH the pH that's normal is 3.8 to 4.5. And this is where happy vaginas are because this keeps them free of infection, free of discharge, free of odor, uh, and generally without giving, um, you know, uh, symptoms of sensitivity or discomfort. There are so many disruptors out there to the vaginal microbiome. So for example, douching is a big disruptor. Sex can be a disruptor, so the uh, exposure to ejaculate. Hormone changes, including birth control pills or an IUD that has hormone or perimenopause or menopause. Uh, fragrant or super chemically laden products can be disruptors to this microbiome and wreak havoc and cause people symptoms. So we've been learning more and more about the different types of communities or different types of microbiomes that exist for vaginas. There's probably, you know, commonly five or six of them talked about right now. And the bottom line is that we are all trying to maintain an adequate acidic pH and a healthy biome so that we're free of symptoms and we're free of recurrent infection. So Bonafide Health, which I work for, uh, makes a probiotic that is specifically 
for vaginal health. And the point of this probiotic is that it contains uh, two strains of lactobacilli, so the good bacteria, and another prebiotic called lactoferrin. And it's taken orally, regularly, on a monthly basis for 15 days of each month to help balance the microbiome. Hmm. And this is particularly helpful for people who have recurrent yeast infections or recurrent BV infections because it tries to keep things balanced and works alongside treatment to do so. And some people just take these types of probiotics to make their uh, vaginas more comfortable, free of discharge, free of odor, even if there's no infection. So hmm. that's kind of it in a nutshell. There's Makes a lot sense. there. <laughs> yeah. A lot to yeah. unpack there. I know. I, tr I tried to, I tried to simplify, but it's a lot. To yeah. Talk about. So, I mean, is it just like something that you would take just to like maintain health just to like, like, even if you are healthy, just to make sure that it's extra healthy, I guess. I don't Yeah. I mean, Clairgy, which is the probiotic I'm speaking of, but there are, you know, several brands of course, and also uh, there's, there's different probiotics for the gut, let's just say but they can be used in various fashions. They can be used as a preventative. So people take them to just maintain a good vaginal pH and microbiome. They, for women who have been experiencing recurrent infection with yeast or BV, and mm. those women are desperate to have something to maintain their uh, sanity and their vaginal health. I recommend taking a probiotic of this nature, you know, on a, on a, a regular basis. And then for people who have symptoms, we often recommend a probiotic, especially if they don't have an infection to treat. I mean, so I'm curious if lifestyle in general would influence how healthy the mm -hmm. vaginal microbiome is and you also like hygiene at the same time. Yep, you are spot on. So hygiene can either be too vigorous or too little and alter the microbiome. So we, you know, we often will see people in office who you know, feel they need to vigorously scrub inside the vagina. They use a douche. They use, you know, uh, very fragrant washes. They use a lot of wipes and that can disrupt the natural uh, pH and balance of the microbiome. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then we have, of course, poor hygiene for various reasons. And that can also be disrupting. Yeah. And keep in mind, some women can use anything on their bottoms, any products, and they have no problems whatsoever. But my practice is usually people coming in who are uncomfortable. So of yeah. course, this is something I investigate. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Um, is there anything we want to touch on there before we kind of switch gears a little bit or anything that we missed that you want to say? Uh, I think that I always like to put a plug in to check in with your healthcare provider. Yeah. If you're having a problem where you, you know, especially if you tried something over the counter, like a probiotic and it's not solving the problem that you're interested in solving, get checked out. We don't want to miss something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, what generally is besides vaginal health, what is sexual health and what's like, is there a difference between the two of those? Uh, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So vaginal health is more of kind of a medical and gynecologic issue. Female sexual health which is what I have expertise in, covers the gamut of sexual concerns uh, that people have. Um, so the most common concerns that I will manage in my office would be things like a lower sex drive or things like pain during sex, 
whether it's pain on penetration or deeper pain, whether it's uh, orgasm issues like a weak orgasm, an absent orgasm, a painful orgasm. That's, these are things that people come in with concerns mm -hmm. about. So I would say, uh, and then vaginal dryness, of course, which corresponds with uh, hormonal changes is something that, of course, I see day in and day out because it's an incredibly common symptom. I'm curious if there's ever, and I don't know, I know that you're a physician, but I'm curious if you ever find that there's an emotional component that is tied to the, um, you know, the lack of sexual health, I guess, and having the the yeah. pain or dryness. Yeah, kind of absolutely. Uh, look, part of an intake for somebody coming in with sexual pain, let's just say, or difficulty with orgasm or just any even vague sexual problem part of the intake includes taking a great history about prior abuse, sexual, emotional, physical, because yeah. that's going to have major implications on sexual function and trust. Yeah. yeah. Um, we also need to, to uh, you know, find out about psychiatric diagnoses or mental health issues like anxiety or depression and the medicines that are used to treat these because they can have a huge impact on uh, sexual drive and orgasmic response. Uh, other medical issues are also very important because again, the treatment of them or the diseases themselves have impact on sexual health. So yes, these are all very important, which is why it's such an interesting field because it's intertwined with day-to-day uh, -day life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how can, what are things, or how, how can we improve the sexual health if we are having some of those things? I mean, obviously go see a physician, but if there's anything that you can like yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of things and I lean very heavily on my uh, colleagues who are in the mental health field mm -hmm. uh, because oftentimes, let's just say someone's sexual drive is low because maybe we uncover that they're not happy with their relationship. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but when they think about like their old high school sweetheart or something, maybe they get a little, you know, uh, uh, peek into a, a sexual drive. So this is something that I would absolutely refer to one of my mental health colleagues who deals with relationships or yeah. couples counseling or yeah. things of that nature. Um, as far as a previous history of abuse or sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, I mean, we'll work on some mindfulness exercises in an effort to let people be in the present and not hopefully think about or you know, call up those terrible memories after they've probably already seen a therapist for this. So mindfulness can be helpful. Uh, we'll talk about having, um, using dilators perhaps, which sometimes can stretch, mechanically stretch the vagina, but also allow a person to introduce something without a partner present in order to become more comfortable and loosen the muscles and train the brain that everything going near uh, the vaginal opening is not traumatic. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are actually lots of things that we can do that are not necessarily medicinal, but are, you know, medical sex therapy, if you will. Um, is there anything different than what we've talked about to help with sexual health during menopause? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the, you know, because the emotional side of things yeah. is something I'll uncover, but not yeah. really something that I'll treat, right. but the, um, yes, look, Vaginal dryness comes in and has many names. Okay. The fancy name is 
uh, vaginal atrophy, which sounds awful, right? But <laughs> vaginal dryness can also include, uh, you know, the shrinkage of the vagina due to low estrogen. It becomes shorter, narrower. The opening becomes more delicate. All of the tissue becomes less elastic and less plump. So it can be more uncomfortable to engage in penetration. So yeah, we use all kinds of remedies to help with that. Bonafide has addressed this issue. So you've probably heard of an ingredient called hyaluronic acid. I have not. Okay. So hyaluronic acid is a natural super duper moisturizer. It's found in all of our bodies, but we lose quite a bit of it when we age. It's also found in a lot of face moisturizers and all. So uh, Bonafide has created an incredible um, insert for the vagina that's used two or three times a week. It, it melts slowly and uh, it's made mainly with hyaluronic acid. So it hmm. increases the moisture incredibly and uh, can help with um, dryness, the symptoms that people get day to day from that, but also uncomfortable intercourse. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Is there is there a way to improve low libido? Like maybe maybe you want to have sex, but you just don't feel like having sex. Like is that a thing? Yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so you know that's a complex issue for women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not just a matter of you know getting it up, getting it down, and being done. So it's not just blood flow. Although yeah. there is a lot to do with blood flow to the genital area to help give that hot and bothered feeling. But there are biologic inputs to libido. There are relationship inputs. There are medical inputs. There's physical and mechanical inputs. There's hormonal. So we really address every aspect of that and try to uh, enhance libido that way. Um, there is no magic pill for, um, you know, uh, libido for women, although there are two FDA approved pharmacologic medications to help with sexual drive, but, uh, you know, really it's more about dissecting what is, uh, the problem and trying to address it. So for example, you mentioned vaginal dryness and pain. If somebody's having pain, why would they want to have sex? So naturally they will avoid it. And then their libido will naturally drop as a result of this because it's a vicious cycle that goes over right. and over. So I'll often, as my first step, if that's a problem that I identify, recommend a great vaginal moisturizer like Reverie, the one I spoke about, that's the little insert, or even sometimes estrogen that goes in the vagina. And then I'll also recommend a good lubricant to use. And this will slowly rehabilitate that dryness, yeah, hopefully uh, mitigate the pain, and then libido will naturally increase because you're getting rid of this negative uh, factor. Uh, we work on relationship, we work on medical problems. Another one that um, we should talk about is weight. So a lot of patients in menopause who have gained some weight and don't feel necessarily at their uh, you know, best fighting weight they feel that their sexual self-esteem may have diminished a little bit and their libido can drop for that reason. So this is something that we address with diet, lifestyle, exercise, stress reduction. What's the, what's the health benefit of orgasms? Cause like Many. that's, that's, huh? 
Many. There are many yeah. health benefits. Yeah, because I mean, this is all getting us back to being sexually healthy so that we can experience yeah. that pleasure. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. you know, look, I think it's very clear that sexual health and general health go hand in hand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Inter- okay. In, in yeah. both directions, you know, healthier sense. people have more sex mm-hmm. and people who have more sex likely are healthier on many fronts. Better cardiovascular health, better immune function, uh, less incidence of depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, orgasm is a wonderful stress release. Some people get better sleep after having an orgasm. So that's kind of where I'm aiming when we talk about the benefits. On a chemical level, you know, orgasm promotes dopamine um, secretion, which is like a, you know, a reward chemical in the brain, of course, you know. Uh, it, uh, it secretes uh, oxytocin, the cuddling hormone. So you may feel more amorous towards your partner or just in general, feel more cuddly if you're on your own. Um, so, you know, those are some general benefits. Yeah. And yeah. I, that's another thing that too has been like, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm like, so I'm already talking about this, but like there, there's, again, we're talking about social media, but, and there's a newsletter I get where they talk about like, like all these things of like why self-pleasure is good in, in, yeah. in the benefits of having an orgasm. And I, I actually love it because I just, I think it's something that, um, you know, you really wouldn't talk about like with your girlfriends, but like, you kind of should, cause it's like, it is healthy to have an orgasm, even yeah. if it's like by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, aside from the fact that it promotes excellent blood flow to the genital region, yeah. which is healthy for the tissue. Look, I mean, everybody brings to the table their own upbringing, their own value system, their own culture. And some people just really aren't comfortable with self-pleasure yeah. um, and that's fine. Uh, but when I bring this up to patients for medicinal reason, yeah. somehow they, you know, even, even those folks will buy in and, uh, uh, reap the benefits of that. So it's, it's really individual, but I think, uh, very important. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's, let's go with, um, switch back into the menopausal gear a little bit. Sure. Well, well, let me ask you this question and I'm going to assume the answer is yes. If we're not having insane side effects, I'm presuming that, having sex would almost help with the symptoms of menopause? Uh, that's a that's a complex one because, yeah. um, you know, it, again, if, if people are suffering with vaginal dryness and discomfort as a result of low estrogen, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it may take a little work to be pleasurable and, and that's important to work on. Yeah. Um, but um, it's, again, same health benefits uh, are, are present. Yeah. Remember, I think it's the current stat is 70% of women have dryness and pain and a good portion of them don't approach treatment for this or they don't ask their healthcare provider or maybe they don't talk about their friends. And that's a lot of people. This is menopausal women we're speaking of. So that's why I think it's important for healthcare providers to bring this up and break the ice in case women don't feel comfortable and for women to be very forthcoming with their practitioners so that there's good communication about that because there are things that can be done. And rather than they, and rather than take, rather than just accepting it of like, this is how it is that it doesn't yeah. have to be a reality that you accept. Yeah. And rather than suffering for sure. Now, yeah. look, to be clear, not everybody cares about this. I see plenty of women who just say, yeah, it's a little painful. It's dry. 
but I'm not, I'm not really, I don't really, it's not bothering me. I'm not distressed and end of conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's each to each their own, whatever their, um, right. Wants and needs are. Um, so when would somebody take hormone replacement therapy and are there alternatives to it? Definitely. So hormone replacement therapy typically contains estrogen, which your ovaries aren't making that much of Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you have a uterus also contains progesterone, this is a second hormone that protects the uterus from growing too much excess tissue on the inside because estrogen can cause that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Hormone replacement therapy is excellent and FDA approved for severe hot flashes, night sweats, uh, it will help with vaginal changes from menopause, and it also provides bone protection from osteoporosis. Uh, it is um, very variable whether somebody wants to take this or not, especially after information came out quite some time ago, suggesting that there was an increased risk of breast cancer, uterus cancer, and cardiovascular event from hormone replacement therapy. We know now that there was some faulty information and interpretation of that study and that the risks are probably not quite as high as were calculated, but nonetheless, this feeling and this aversion to hormone therapy has still remained, Um, but you know, plenty of women uh, still would like to try it and I prescribe it if needed. Uh, Alternatives for treatment of hot flashes would include, uh, you know, from from, uh, um, conservative to aggressive, lifestyle changes that we've spoken about, herbal supplements, again, Mm -hmm. bona fide being a big player in the field to make a great hot flash remedy called Relizin. Uh, Antidepressants, believe it or not, several of them have been helpful for hot flashes and night sweats and also some of the mood changes related to menopause. Uh, There are a couple of other pharmacologic options and then hormone replacement therapy. So it's very important to speak to women as individuals about their medical histories, whether they smoke, uh, you know how severe their symptoms are, and then make an informed decision with them as to what they would prefer to take. So for example, somebody who's had breast cancer, they can't take hormone replacement therapy. It's contraindicated because it might worsen or cause their cancer to recur. So right. we have to find alternatives. Yeah. Women who have had a blood clot, same thing. They are not candidates for estrogen. Uh, women who have a migraine headache with an aura, you know, like a really severe migraine, they have to be tra- treated very carefully. They may have a, a higher chance of stroke on hormone therapy. So I'm glad that there is this gamut of other uh, tools to consider. So what would you recommend for somebody who might be entering that perimenopausal phase or menopausal phase, or is just curious about improving their vaginal and sexual health? Yeah. Yeah. I would suggest number one, focus on lifestyle and be proactive, like we spoke about earlier. Number two, talk to your mom, talk to your sisters and mm-hmm. find out what their experience was. So you may have a little bit of a window into what to expect in the future. Uh, number three, check in with your gynecologist or other healthcare provider, because you may have a medical issue that needs to be addressed. And I would say that, um, you know, explore your options, educate yourself and communicate. And that's really going to be your best bet. Um, and then with the, with the bona fide supplements, yes. um, how, how, do, how does that work? Do you like work with somebody to then kind of find what you need? Yeah. Great question. So bona fide, which is easily accessible on their website, which is hellobonafide.com. 
they literally have researched and uh, trialed multiple uh, supplements in studies. So we know that what we offer is safe and effective. And um, they have addressed the main and common symptoms that perimenopausal and menopausal women are addressing. Hot flashes, mood irritability, vaginal dryness, sexual orgasmic response and satisfaction, um, uh, the probiotic for the vaginal microbiome. They also just put out a wonderful uh, hair and skin supplement. So the information on the website is incredibly up-to-date, valid, accurate, medically vetted. I've, met, I've vetted most of it. Um, so I think there's a wealth of information to get educated yeah. and we have, uh, it's over the counter. So anything that, uh, looks appealing or appropriate can be ordered online. They do, uh, you know, monthly or every three month, uh, deliveries. And I, I think people have been incredibly happy. Yeah. Well, I it's like what option. you said about the, uh, there's plenty of info to get educated on yeah. here. And I think that's really important. And then I also think conversations like what we have help as well. So thank oh, you great. for like expressing this. And you know, I, I am happy to kind of start to bring these conversations and be part of bringing, cause I know that they are happening, but I Absolutely. think it's really important. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. If you want to learn more, check out those show notes. And then don't we have, forget, we have our guide to thrive, which is five tips to help you thrive in your career without experiencing burnout. So grab that and we'll see you next week. Have a great day team.